Welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is episode 31, season two of the Shop Stool podcast. As always, I'm gonna start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, uh, Brian, Brian. <laughs> Robin, <laughs> how are you? So, been a long day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Brian, how are you? I'm good, man, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Good. And my name is Robin Lewis, welcome to the show, everyone. So tonight's guest is another woodworker from Tasmania and his focus is on furniture and lighting. And while that's a particular specialty that we haven't had on the show before, he's also the first legally blind woodworker we've spoken to. His awards list is pretty impressive and his pieces are on display around the world. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Duncan Meerding to the show. How are you tonight? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm really excited about this, um, this show tonight. Just going through your Instagram and website, just some of the pieces that you've got are just amazing. Um, and as, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of it seems to be focused around lighting. So um, I, I, yeah, maybe you could just give everyone listening a, a bit of a, a description on, on what you do and um, the type of work that you put out. Okay, yeah, so I um, design and make a, a range of lights um, and, and furniture. Um, I, yeah, it's, I suppose, a lot, of, a lot of them focus quite heavily on um, the effect light has when moving through, through and around an object, so even the furniture is a bit, bit that way, I suppose you'd, you'd say. And, um, yeah, like one of the more sort of um, well-known designs of mine is the crack log light or the stump light, the sort of... Uh, a log which has been um, caught out, and then lights coming out of the out of the fissures, out of cracks, sort of in, um, embraced what was something that was generally associated with waste with with timber work, and, and ta- made it the feature of the design. And it's very much about the light bursting from the side. Hmm, I like that. Is that the one that you've got on your uh, website? It's a it's a big chunk of walnut. Yeah, that's that's one of them. Yeah, there's um there's so there's I'm actually in the process of updating the website, so um it's 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 um it's good I'll be able to talk a bit more about things that you may not have seen as well. But there's um there's a new version of it as well, which is like a there's like a trunk light, which is like a two meter high version, um which just did for a, a big like a, a local commission through the Tasmanian Government Art Site scheme and um. There's like yeah they got four human sized ones in a in a theater redevelopment and um, then like the stump light which is like a comes it's usually in macrocarpa because it's good rot resistant timber um, so it can be used inside or out and um, it's a salvaged timber and um, yeah the original one was made from walnut and um, it yeah it was a piece of walnut I couldn't use for much else and um, sort of embraced that and, and, and made that the feature from it. Nice one. So have you been a, a woodworker for as long as you can remember or is it something that you're, you're fairly new to? Um, I, I suppose a lot of Tasmanians probably do have, have a dabble in woodwork no, quite regularly, like from a young age, I suppose. Um, I, I, and I would, I'd be one of those people, definitely. I, I, um, I started woodturning. Um, quite a, quite a young age and making billy carts and racing them around 
um, sort of a reserve in the backyard when I was quite young and just sort of did, did that as a family sort of um, bit of family fun, so to speak. And um, and then from that, I, I got quite interested in doing timber work in, in high school and then sort of continued with it in, into into what we've called college down here, which is year 11 and 12. Uh, we've got quite a unique um, high, uh, secondary school um, situation. And so, yeah, I've, I've been, I've always had a bit of, a, quite a bit of interest in it. Um, if you told me when I'd graduated from, um, from, from my, um, my, my HSC from my, my year 12, um, that I was going to be doing, um, you know, doing woodwork as a, as a profession and, and designing and making things as a profession, I would have, uh, I would have probably t- told, told you to come again. So uh, it's not really <laughs> something I was expecting to be doing now. And I sort of, I, I still like, it wasn't necessarily always my career plan, even at the end of graduating from uni, I was thinking of going into social work, for example. See, when you say, Duncan, that the schooling system there was a bit different, was it literally just by name or the fact that your year 11 and 12, you could really specialise more into woodwork and joinery and things? Or? So, so in, in Tasmania, we have year seven, seven till 10, which is our high school. Um, and that's much more traditional. You go, you wear a uniform, um, you, you, you get ticked off if you don't turn up to class. Um, that sort of thing, but when once you hit sixteen, you can actually just go, nah, I'm done, and then walk out. Um, I, I don't know if that's the case in all states. Um, I'm not totally up to date with all of that, but um, we then have what's called the co- uh, the college system. I think it was called the matriculation college as well for quite a while, um, and it sort of combines the the vocational stuff with the academic stuff. So my my year 11 and 12, I did some really quite different things. Um, I, uh, I did, I did everything from sort of audio design through to woodwork, through to outdoor recreation, um, for the more sort of almost vocational end of things. And then I did history and sociology and, 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 um, and, you know, maths and science. And so you do the traditional, but you can also, you still get a chance to not, not forget about the, the other bits, which I think is really, really crucial because it, I, I learnt a, I learnt a lot from from the things that weren't necessarily the most academic. So so Duncan, you had some early woodworking experience then through the school system. How did you come about getting into or so interested in lighting? And I guess in the same question, um, did you? This might be maybe not the same question. Maybe this is a completely separate question. But um, did did your vision? Did you always have issues with your vision, or did that happen later on? And was that to do with had something to do with your interest in lighting, or seems like a good fit anyway? Well, I suppose um, I always like to have a bit of fun with that question, and just like so some people say, I just looked into the sun for too long, but. <laughs> Um, that's not, not, I actually managed to get someone to believe that, but I won't, um, I won't embellish the tale too much this time, but I, uh, I, I, my vision degenerated when I was 18. It's from a rare, rare hereditary condition that strikes a bit at random. Um, and, uh, I, I, yeah, I was into woodwork, um, and had, had done a range of it in in high school and stuff and um sorry because it's double pronger i'm trying to remember the rest of the the actual answer but um the um 
Yeah, I, I um, yeah. So yeah, vision degenerated when I was eighteen, and then sort of stabilised after twelve months. I was an orderly at that point. Thought I was going to do nursing or something along those lines, but then I went back to uni. Um, um, when my vision sort of stabilised to what I got now, which is a bit less than five percent, um, concentrated around the periphery, and um, I went in and did started doing sociology and history, and then I found out about a course uh, through Vision Australia. And it was like for it was sort of a classic situation. It's like oh yeah, it's a ten week course, one day a week. And it's like well, that's kind of useless if you're in Tasmania because um, I can't go to Melbourne one day a week for ten weeks. So I, I called them up and had a bit of a chat, and they were open to the idea of having me come through and do a quick um, sort of crash course, I suppose. And it gave me sort of the skills to be able to then go to the University of Tasmania and and um, sort of show them the folio of what I'd done at high school and. And asked them, oh, well, can I start doing electives in wood in wood skills or furniture design? And I originally got interested from the making perspective and then I got caught, kind of um, caught up in the more artistic sort of design end of things and just kept on going with it. And I ended up majoring in a like a humanities arts degree. I ended up majoring in design, which was a fine arts school thing. Like it was originally an elective. So I majored in my electives and, um, yeah, it was quite, quite, quite fun. And I suppose I was always drawn a little bit to the lighting and but wasn't always the only thing I did I've done had some furniture ideas and did a fair few of them but yeah I suppose um yeah the lighting sort of came along further on in the in the in the degree and then afterwards it's sort of what took off for me um in relative terms it took off for me um and for and I've just kind of kept on going with it but I do I do enjoy making making furniture but it's it's a pretty um you know, it's it's um, sort of a juggling act to try and do the two. Yeah. So with the, and this is coming from the perspective of someone myself who loves doing lighting projects. I love making, you know, doing combining woodworking and, and you know, lighting. But as someone who's not an electrician, I'm really fascinated about, you know, where that sort of crossover is because I know that technically I'm not supposed to be doing you know, if I'm working on a lamp, technically I'm not supposed to be wiring it up. Are you trained in that or do you have someone to do your wire-ups for you? Like, just, are you an electrician? I just get a bit of aluminium foil and wrap it. Uh, um, <laughs> no, sorry. Um, no, um, I, no, I should be careful. I'll get myself in trouble with some of the jokes. But no, the um, uh, I've got people that do the wiring for me um that have either got sort of electrical engineering backgrounds or um test and tag licenses so the like the legislations are different in different states as to who can touch what um and you know there's um like there's a there's a range of different legislations it's not just the electrical ones you need to consider with a lot of these things so for someone who isn't um so isn't an electrician and wants to approach an electrician. So, I, you know, I've built something, I've built this pendant light and I think it's great and I want to get it certified or signed off or whatever the word is. Um, is that something that you can just ring up your local Sparky about or do you need to go through a specific channel to get that done? Well, there are two different, there are different things. So there's the, um, there's the hanging like ones, which means... Okay, so there's actually there's multiple things to consider, and, and it sort of depends which country you're selling it to as well. So, um, the 
and and also like in Australia, if you're doing low voltage, you can do pretty much anything. You just could go here. We are go get it. Why buy? Here's an outdoor luminaire, or here's an indoor luminaire. It's twelve volt. Go and get an um, get it wired by an electrician um, when it's installed. Um, it's quite similar almost with a with the electrical stuff for um, down lights. Not down lights. Sorry, hanging lights. Um, they can be. Um, that that legislation is it's very sort of it's it's it can it's uh it doesn't have to necessarily be it just has to comply it doesn't have to be tested but then you've got other ones which where you're plugging in um higher voltages with a switch and things there's there's a few few more hurdles to jump so to speak and um yeah like then there's questions of like well if you're showing something in an exhibition you don't really like you, there's questions of like, well, is it a commercial thing or are you just showing a piece of work? So you, you kind of, yeah. So you kind of go, well, you know, it's it's four thousand dollars to test to test something for one standard. Um, that's a few lights that you need to sell. So you kind of you kind of have to work out, um, you know, cost benefit analysis for certain certain things as well. Um, and everything every time you exhibit something, you're not going to go and get it tested to for the 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 testing for the um. Whatever I can't remember the full full name of the 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 standard. Yeah, so that that's like the um, the lighting standard as opposed to the electrical standard. Um, and then there's the electrical stuff on top of it as well. But yeah, it's all quite interesting. Like you, you for me, like when I got stuff wired up, I had it wired by um, people with electrical engineering backgrounds. But then I also got a Sparky to come and have a look at it and say, "What do you think?" And it's like, "Yep, fine," you know. So. Um, it's it's a matter. It's, it's like a lot of these things. It's like, to what level do you want? Do you, do you deal with the liabilities? I suppose. Um, so speaking of, you briefly mentioned international there. Um, so one of the lights that stood out to me when I was scrolling through was your um, propeller light, and I saw your short video on your website, and you kind of mentioned about your propeller light. Um, is it something that you sell a fair amount of? And or are you making each one of these yourself or have you got some kind of team in place to, to sort out batching these sorts of things out? Yeah, so, the, yeah, the um, you broke up a bit there, but in terms of I think I got the general gist. So with a lot of the designs, I've got a, I've got a, um, a range of subcontractors that come in and, and, and help out. Um, like I think a lot, I think pretty much anyone that runs a small business, especially with, with this sort of game, if they're doing projects, we'll have somebody come in at some some particular point in time. Um, that's particularly um, like for batch production. It's particularly important, and I suppose like I'd, I'd love to do more one-off commissions of furniture and stuff where I'm the only one on the tools. But like the thing that's keeping my practice afloat is is the batch production, so to speak. Um, and so yeah, I've, I've got a little a little team, and and um, and yeah, the th- the things can be um, sort of there's a degree of scale to which they can be done yeah so does that answer the question i didn't quite get it all yeah no no that sounds that's fine i guess the follow-up to that was um so do you would you say you're working on like a pre-order type um scenario or will you wait for a bunch of orders or are you just constantly making a few of everything every month um there's certain products I kind of work out what sells better, and I've got like, I've got reserve stock of something. So, for example, I've got something on the site called the 
propeller blossom um, and it's like a, about an 85 centimetre wide um, pennant light. It's actually a, um, like um, a flat pack light, so I've just, it doesn't take up that much room to have it made. But the problem is, is it costs a bit in materials to make it. But um, I've got one of them in, um, one of them in reserve in the workshop ready to go out and I've got one sitting on consignment at a shop, um, for example. That's probably the biggest item that I'd have just holding stock off. But the others like the crack lock lamps and the um, and the propellers, like the smaller ones, we've got reserve of stock. Um, but then there are uh, um, other ones we probably make to order a bit more regularly, like things like the lily lamp, which is like a fairly labour-intensive um, bit of work and, and it's really interesting going back to it because it was the one that I was trying to push when I first um, started and now I'm kind of going, oh, it's not, not, not the end of the world that that didn't take off because um, it's pretty sadistic with some of, some of the processes and, yeah. It's funny, you're probably one of the first people that we've had on, Duncan, that actually is probably is stocked by, um, by galleries and things and obviously part of that's due to the fact you do lighting and it's they're physically smaller things and easier for stores to handle. But one thing I noticed scrolling through your Instagram feed was uh, the packaging that you do for the for the cracked lamp. And it's really made me reconsider the way I send things out to clients. I'm like, shit, it doesn't look professional. Um, so, yeah, just talk us through how important that is to you, to you like actually getting the whole product to represent your brand all the way down to the packaging? So the packaging has actually come about probably uh, over over the last 10 years. It's not something I did. Like the first log lights, for example, I sent out with um, – in just I sent out in a, uh, some uh, – I think I had like a, uh, a couple of boxes that were like bulk boxes with which had 20-litre t- paints of, tins of paint in. <laughs> threw, threw bunches of them in there and just scrunched up a bunch of newspaper and went, oh, it's done, it's packaged and sent it off to a retailer. And that was when the crack log lamps were first, first sort of selling through through a shop. And the, the, the retailer's like, uh, you said these were going to be packaged. And I was like, yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> the package, he didn't say to what extent. Um, and <laughs> but like from, from my perspective at that point, I was a bit, I was a bit of an eco warrior and I suppose I still am in, in some respects with some of my work. And I was like, well, why should I create more crap that's going to go straight into landfill? Um, and the problem is, is I was still sending out crap that's going to landfill, but I was effectively potentially going to create more things that were going to go into landfill if I didn't package the lamps properly. And so I don't have a box for everything, but the brand, the branding is part of it, but also just protecting some of the stock because some of the couriers are totally brutal. Like you'd be surprised yeah. how how many broken logs I've had sent back by post by the post by clients that the post or the courier have broken. Like I've had thousands of dollars of stock broken in one in one year. Like it was it was um yeah it was it was a bit terrifying. So the box was is you know it's part 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 of its branding, but part of it's also just trying yeah trying to deal with um, the heathens throwing things out of trucks and stuff. But <laughs> um, you know like. Everyone's seen the forklift thrown into a crate, like with, with well, maybe not everyone, but like you, yeah. you, you can imagine it. Uh, um, and and yeah, I've definitely done things that are um, that are a bit bigger and freighting it is a bit of a pain. And I suppose in Tassie, it's one of those things you kind of have to consider, like how you're actually going to get it off the island, um, because we do have a limited what, what um, per- customer. What percentage base. of your work do you reckon leaves the island? Oh. 
at the moment, not as much. Um, it's, it depends on the months you ask me. Um, it's always a hard question, everyone, and I think a lot of people probably deal with this when they're having interviews. They're like, "Well, how many international orders do you get?" Well, it's like depends which which day of the week you ask me. Yeah. Um, but um, in terms of at the moment, um, yeah, it, uh, yeah more, there's definitely been a surge in in uh, interstate interest at the moment, but and and international interest. So I'd say like seventy percent, eighty percent leaves the island, um, maybe a bit more. Um, sort of depends. Like I'm kind of being shrouded a little bit by the fact that I've just done a, a open studio where so so a little bit, but also, um, you know, when you do a bigger commission, you're like, oh, hang on, how do I factor that in? But it's kind of a bit of a harder one to sort of factor in with it. Yeah. 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 Um, I've got a question about um, your design approaches and mm. whether being visually impaired, like, do you sketch your designs? Do you do you physically model them? Do you CAD model them or do you just go straight to one-to-one prototypes and just work away? Like, is there a part of that that's been affected or? Um, it's a it's sort of, def- uh, it's, it's a, yeah, my design process All is a tricky above. one. Yeah, like sometimes I design things while I'm walking on the beach, you know, but I think that's not necessarily design. That's kind of like the, okay, that's the initial inception of the idea. Um, and I think yeah, a lot yep. of people probably get that. They're like, oh, oh this is the idea I'm going to do. But they're not thinking about, oh, what am I going to do with my next design? They're just doing something else entirely. It's like some people probably do that when they're sanding, when they're bored, bored out of their brain. Like, um, but, um, you know, I've definitely had aha moments when I'm sanding. Um, but, um, the yeah, I suppose I've got the, you know, the initial idea and then, yeah, it sort of depends on the on the product, I suppose. So, the log the log light stuff is kind of very materials driven with the design, but then there are other things where yeah. I've just gotten a coat hanger and a bit of cardboard and a bit of hot melt glue and oh, burnt my fingers. You know, everyone loves a bit of hot melt glue and like chuck chuck in the um, bend bend the coat hanger and then w- just make it look like a something out of um, like kids made. But the idea it's just been able to convey the idea. Um, yeah. And then, you know, being able to really communicate that idea, especially if you're getting something um, prototyped up um, using a, a third party um, or you need to get somebody from that poop stage like, okay, well, maybe a designer or a maker will be able to understand this, but um, a client won't. Um, they'll be like, right. who, yeah. Yeah. who is this idiot? Like, what are we doing? Like, um, so <laughs> having having like a – having that – and then going talking to like someone to get them to help with modeling it with um you know SketchUp or Rhino or something like that. Um, right. So it's definitely like there's the conveying and being able to re- resolve the form and stuff. Um, and then there's the okay, well then now how do I make this presentable or how do I um get it to to a medium where I'm able to sort of communicate that with with with, with someone that's doing sort of assistant work with me. And that's been really um, sort of crucial is working out okay. Where do you get to that point? And, you know, I suppose the most important thing for me is don't go and get something drawn straight away, but play play a bit first for me. Like, mm. So, for example, the propeller light came about because I was trying to do something else with timber and I was just playing with timber on the off-axis um, just because originally it was meant to look like a just the the bend of the wood was from the point to the re- end, end of the round of the um, of the pedal. And then you just the, the idea was that the grain was going just um, hor- um, yeah horizontally along along that, and then the, the um, 
that that would increase the bend, the bend going a certain way. So this is like really thin ply, plywood. And then eventually sort of played with putting on the off axis, just going, oh, well, wonder, let's see if, if I get that same effect. And it didn't. It did something else. And then that's sort of how the propeller came about. So right. I, was tr- I was just sort of playing around and that's how I got to that sort of that form. Um, and ad- admittedly, it took like a couple of years to actually get from that form to something that was actually a working prototype. Um, and I, I had to walk away from it for a little while as well. But like, I think a lot of people have had that sort of um, frustration with the, with the design and just want to throw it out the window a few times. But it's, it's definitely like getting the form is only one part of it. Um, the rest of it's then trying to actually make it work. Yeah, so I don't know. That That's probably quite a bit of a convoluted way think- of explaining my process. <laughs> you just you just said um, something about getting frustrated, and, and I, I'm listening to you explain your design process. And it's like if I have this aha moment, I'll run to SketchUp and I'll draw what I'm what's in my head, and whether I, I save that file or not, at least I've got some kind of three dimensional idea of will this shape work. But you then have to to try and convey what's in your head to somebody else to draw to decide if you if that mm. is is that is that what's happening like you, you have to try and that, to me that seems like ultimate frustration to try and describe something to someone else to try and model to see if it's even going to work in in reality yeah so so yeah it is that is frustrating and i suppose the key thing for me is working it out with some sort of model first but getting mm. um, getting people that can understand that model. Um, and I have drawn right. some things with like just a big fat texture and sort of looks like a kid's, kid's, kid's done, but it's been able to explain the, the, something in, three, in 3D. Um, yeah. so I, got, I did do some training of drawing and stuff at uni and, and I did actually, funnily enough, my teacher, who was quite open-minded about my particular situation when I went through, she, she, she'd actually um, if we worked out some ways for me to try and draw stuff in CAD and and I did try and I actually drew the propeller uh, like um, geometry or shape of that original sort of pedal sort of teardrop sort of shape um, right. in, in AutoCAD because um, she'd actually taught me using um, a lot of the stuff that she'd learnt as a um, as a designer maker using DOS based AutoCAD so okay. she knew a lot of commands and <laughs> um, it's a different way of drawing um, yeah. But I was also using it with a big magnifier um, app on the on the on the computer called like Zoom Text, and there's one sort of built into a lot of Windows and stuff. And right, I, I got that just from doing point to point sort of drawing it using like you know arcs and what have you. But by the end of it, I just sort of felt like it was just not that fun. Like in terms of, I just got quite severe visual fatigue. So. From that experience, I like, well, I managed to get the geometry right, and it, but it's like, is it really worth it for like the right. the the effort to to result ratio? And I suppose what I've done is I've just gotten to a point where I'm drawing things and then getting someone and then go, asking them to do it, or like I'm drawing things with a big fat texture, or I'm doing something with the model making and then and then going, no, I want something else changed. And I suppose it's probably just as frust- in some respects frustrating for the person doing the drafting, but. Mm doing it live with them is really important because otherwise 
you know, words can be quite problematic when you're doing it over email or something like that. Um, and at the end of the day, they're trying. You're trying to get this model um, with, uh, over to that point. And I suppose that's the most important thing for me. I think is also just the model making. But sometimes we also just go straight into the one-to-one mock-ups as well. Um, like a lot, it's quite interesting area. Um, this sort of, I think the VR stuff would be quite an interesting. Like the virtual reality stuff would be quite interesting to work on to work out how can you actually convey visual stuff through tactile medium um, and then convey it back into a digital format. And that sort of goes back to something that I did last year. Um, sorry, I'm aware I'm talking a lot, but um, the um, that's that's why you're here, Duncan. Oh well, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure there'll be. A bit, I'll tr- maybe I should talk in bigger bites so you can edit more of me out. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so the architecture on site course I did, like I helped teach in, in, in UCL, the Bartlett School of Architecture. That was like a world first pilot. And the idea of that was to give like a bridging course because I, there's nothing like this around for me in terms of de- design or um, design and making. And, and, and the idea was that I was, I, um, so I was engaged to help teach some of the, make, the making part of, of the Be Made workshops as a, as a, like a vision impaired or partially blind practitioner. And um, the idea is to just really sort of push the cusp and push push that because the representation of people with disabilities or disabled people in, in the field of architecture isn't isn't high. Um, architecture is quite um, it can be a bit homogenous in terms of its, its composition. And then and, and, and the dean of the architecture school really acknowledged that and, and started this sort of prog- prog- project to have a bridging course teaching blind and vision impaired people um, architecture and design skills so that they're, they're better equipped to go into the that, that, that area. Were they were they looking at things like 3D scanners or anything like that, like in terms of model making for for architecture, like to be able to physically make a form and then scan it and like in terms of teaching visually impaired students? So, yeah, I think that was something that was discussed definitely and it's something that's would have been used a bit by like one of the uh, it was a collaboration between Disordinary Architecture Project and and um, and UCL and that def- Disordinary Architecture do do a lot of bringing in um, disabled artists into the into this field and um, there was definitely discussion about three D pr- um, printing and what have you but they were really trying to be really conscious about it's also. The immediate thing was, okay, let's get robots to make it and the vision-impaired person can try and get it communicated. And and the, the key frustration I have as a maker is trying to um, get something done in drawing is, is that's when I get most frustrated. But if I'm on the tools and making something and being able to convey something through making, I, I'm, I'm least frustrated. So having skills to be able to use a table saw is really important to me. But like, there's there was a degree of risk aversion through that process, and and that's part of the reason why I think the the the, the dean and, and the disordinary architecture project were really keen to sort of get people pushed in that direction of 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 craft or making, and, and to be able to get those sorts of skills going, but also break down sort of um, mental mm. barriers um, from from everyone. With with that in mind, you were just talking about being on a table saw. Uh, I saw that video mm. um, on your website where you're using. The tools. Are you on the tools quite often now? I prefer to be on the tools more often. Hmm. Um, but running the business, as you guys would know, you've got to do quotes and all the other stuff, which will, this, you know, it's not the funnest part of it. Um, like, yeah, I, um, I still do use the tools. Like, I've got a workshop full of 
um, 200 machines and stuff. And I've actually just done a pro- finished a project getting my thickness planer to talk um, and my table sort of talk, um, which is quite 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 a game changer for me because of what I used to do is I just chuck stuff through the thickness planer and then put the calipers on it and then just manually wind it up and because you you know you can you know in the rough area how much you know half a wind is for example on a lot of the old machines um but being able to just have this talking um interaction like it's a it's a real crazy system where it's just um yeah it's a bunch of stuff that's sort of talking to each other that never existed um or at, like isn't it isn't something that exists as an off the shelf item and um and they're like thickness planes big one table saws another one because otherwise before back in the day because the way I'd do things I'd have to like turn off the table saw isolate the blade um you know make sure the blade's not spinning with an off cut you know um you know isolate it and then go up and measure it with a talking tape measure or um, set it up with um tactile measuring blocks um and and you know feeling the blade or what have you or um and and having like that that's great especially for accurate work because tactile blocks is you know i reckon everyone on you know on this podcast probably uses tactile stuff quite regularly like for kissing the blade or what have you but if you're trying to cut up a bunch of panels or cut up a bunch of other stuff for just basic things like you're making a crate turning off the thing every time to change the, the the actual thing is pain in the butt so being able to have effectively what everyone else has through digital readouts in an audible way is amazing so um, essentially, if, if you've got like an older style table saw, which has been retrofitted with some sensors to tell you where the fence is from the blade, is that what is that what? Yeah, yeah, correct. Effective, effectively, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like an old SEM table saw that I, I bought. And, yeah. Um, and it's got yeah a fence that um, it's like a linear track like an optical scale type of thing, and then that goes out to the digital readout. It's like one of those pro-scale boxes things, and then that's got a data output that converts the proprietary signal to a USB signal that then goes into um, a Raspberry Pi, <laughs> and then that's got like a little program in the Raspberry Pi that says if you hear this, I mean, if you get sent this, read this sort of um, scenario. Mm-hmm. And it just means I can I can adjust things while the blade's still yeah. going, which is it's a bit of a game changer for me in terms of speed. That is awesome. Jeez, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind that in my workshop. <laughs> Every time you read, you know, one seventeen, and it should have been one twenty-seven. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, it's, it's not the best. It's not the best voice, though. <laughs> <laughs> can you not? Can you not hire somebody to do a cool voiceover? No. Well, yeah, I think like Darth Vader with a bit of breathing in between or something would be good fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very very cool. I guess that's the, the 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 reason that's never been commercial is just because. It's a very small group that it would market to. And that group, I would have imagined, would have been very nervous around the tools. I mean, I don't own a table saw, but I imagine when I get one, I'm going to be very scared to use this this tool. Have you had any near misses that you think could have been related to your site? Uh, yeah, I've also had near misses due to me being an idiot. Um, so, and everyone's got that. Like, I, I broke a bone in one of my hands because I was sanding a log on end grain on a big three phase belt sander. Um, and I had my hand caught in between the crack and it threw back. And I was like, um, I, it was a couple of days, I was quite into climbing before, at this point in time. And I was um, rock climbing and I was going to, I was like totally in denial that I'd done it. Um, and, and I was like, oh, it's not broken, it's not broken. And, you know, but like, um, that's just like, um, 
and then you know a few days later I went had to go to the doctor and they're like yeah don't even have to x-ray that it's you know your fractured bone in your hand but like I also <laughs> partially severed a bo- um, tendon in my hand by using a chisel to try and like extend like by by like burying it halfway down a 400 millimeter piece of wood uh, that's not to do with yeah. my sight it's just to do with me being an absolute idiot like but like ev- yeah. everyone everyone's most people when they've done an injury is usually because they've gone oh whoops I shouldn't have done that um, yeah. but like yeah. by the same token I think if you operate all those machines and just expect it to bite you that's the most important way to sort of approach them and mm. I think yeah we're talking about the nervousness and what have you but a lot of the reason why there's people have nervousness around tools is because they don't have the opportunity to use them um, mm. and, and that's ex- even extended even further with, you know, vision impaired, vision impaired people. Cause it's like the expectation is, oh, no, you can't do it cause you can't see the blade or what have you. Like there's been cases in the last sort of decade of vision impaired people not being allowed to use scissors well, in, in, in the classroom because they might cut themselves. It's like, well, yeah, they're going to cut themselves because they're going to have to figure out how to not cut themselves when they grow up out of, out of school. So, um, yeah. yeah, anyway, so like I, I, I'm, I'm very cautious and, and, and I have, 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 I'm saying I'm very cautious, but I'm, as I'm saying, I'm thinking back to how I did something stupid today. Like, um, but like, um, yeah, there's a degree at which I suppose I have to concentrate a bit more in certain ways, and I have to rely a lot more on jigs. But yeah, sometimes, sometimes, um, yeah, I suppose the vision would definitely play play in with that. Yeah. Mm. Just on a side note, I got stuck into a, a video playlist this week about someone who had an accident on their jointer. Mm. Now, for anyone who's been listening to the show uh, uh, back in season one, they'll know that Jordan had an accident with his jointer. And so I was quite interested to see what what happened with this this guy Mm. because all my experience with a jointer has been it's, it's, it's a fairly safe tool, but then you have a big group of people who talk about it being so dangerous. So started watching this video. It turned out the guy had his ear defenders Mm. on he had the guard off, put some timber down on the machine to rest it there, didn't realize it was on, went to grab it, and his hand just got caught straight mm. in. And, and you just think, you know, in your head you're envisioning some, some you know, the, the board slipped or his hand, and that is a, as you say, Duncan, like that's, that, in my opinion, qualifies as a stupid mistake it's you've you've really got to be doing something outside of the 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 norm mm. to get to have an injury like that so so yeah I, I would agree i would agree with that but i also would maybe agree that like we can say that in in hindsight um like from for yeah, me like I, like like I, I can say it's easy to like those things i did were that like really properly stupid but like the um like the jointer like I've heard of someone else where they dropped a bit of wood and they went to try and catch it and they put the, they t- took the tips of their like took their pads off their fingers off, um, and like it's, you know, in some respects, I th- if I drop something around a machine, I just let it go um, yeah, because you just assume it, yeah. like oh well it's gone, it's done. Yeah. But like it's 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 easy to say <laughs> that because I you know we've got retro. Um, um, hindsight, yeah, there. Sorry, and but the 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 thing about jointers is that they are they are quite brutal. But the training I was talking about with Vision Australia, and this is the training they're sort of extending with the architecture beyond sight stuff, and I'm doing some something similar down here with a um, local no, not for profit sort of NGO, like a blind organisation down here. Um, is you teach people to just assume the blade's always going. 
um, and approach it accordingly. And just like, even if you know if you know the blade's not going, just touch it with a bit of offcut first, and then isolate it so that you know that it's good. And so, like, I used to really piss off people in my shared workshop because I'd always isolate the machine. And they're like, why are you isolating? It's like because I because I'm touching the blade when I'm setting things up. So it's like it's like really <laughs> basic stuff. And but these guys are like, oh, you don't need to do that. Oh, if you don't do that, you shouldn't be using machines. I was like, well, vice vice versa, because that jointer story just made it a perfect example. Like, always have a stop gap where you, if if the you know have the guard down um, or have something on over the top of the blade of the thing until um, and. So that if it is going, it's not a major issue. And then any time you open it, just assume that it's going. So it's like a, um, it's just a big, um, like you know. And then just test it with a bit of wood or something. But like that's something that I've, <laughs> you get you get taught this hyper diligence if you can't see what's going on. I suppose um, it's really just machinery one hundred and one what you're talking about. Yeah. But I think um, people just get either at either either that you get people who say it doesn't apply to me because I'm whatever. Superman, mm. or you just you've been in your workshop for ten years and you get a bit complacent with mm. with the rules, and I think that's probably part of the problem a lot of the time. Mm. Once you've been working for so so many years and never had a problem, it'll be that one day that you do have a problem where you forget to do your safety check. What is what is the isolating that you're talking about, Duncan? I haven't heard that term. Uh, well, in that context. So it's just, it's like it's a generic thing that I would say for all tools. So you don't change your router bit while it's plugged in, for example. I'd call that isolating. So you're isolating it from the power or you hit the e-stop on the drill press while you change the bit or you hit the e-stop on the, on the table saw while you're, um, while you're moving a jig up and setting it up or what have you. Um, Duncan, I have been thinking about these cracked log um, lights, which I've seen all over your, your Instagram and stuff. And as a product, or as a as an object, it's awesome. And a, a product, I'm I'm sure it's awesome as well. My question is: Have you got fields of people walking through the bush, trying to find exact diameter logs that are cracked and fit the bill? I mean, is there a problem with supply there? Um, oh, I'll, I'll let you know a secret. The cracks are extended by us, so. Um, yeah, well, I figured that. Yeah. <laughs> Like the, the the thing is, especially because I'm moving over to Macrocarpa, because I've done it with a range of different woods, and just because Mac, Macrocarpa, and we're doing it, still doing it with a range of woods, but yeah, there's a certain plentifulness all over Australia of Macrocarpa, um, or Monterey cypress, I think, is its um, common more common term for it um, out of Australia, but um, it, it's like effectively a windbreak. On a lot of farms, and people cut them down semi regularly. So I managed to get bits. And the thing is, is it uses a bit of wood that a lot of Australian millers wouldn't touch um, because it's too it's just too small to run a Lucas over or what have you, um, a Lucas mill over. Um, but you know, there's um, yeah, you know, I've also built up relations with logging salvages and what have you. So as part of their operations, they they put some stuff aside for me. Because like it's it's still relatively small scale comparatively to like you know building a house or what have you in terms of using milled up timber. I see it's a yeah. it's um it's not native to Australia. It's from California. Yeah, but it's very popular in New Zealand. Yeah, it's everywhere. Right, yeah. interesting. I it's a beautiful it's a tree. Kind of cypress. If you've got the information in front of you, I think it's a type of yeah cypress. Monterey cypress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's actually pretty hard to get a hold of here. 
clean at the moment. Um, the big, the big old trees that were were big enough to mill nice clean boards out of have a lot. Of, a lot of it's gone, and so um, most of the macrocarp are available here is in knotty grade, and uh, that's not really what people want. So it can be tricky to get the clean stuff, and it's becoming pretty expensive. Duncan, do you have a favorite piece? Of, of other people's or um no no, no of yours of yours well, you, uh, well okay a favorite piece of other people's and then a favorite piece of yours oh shit now i've got myself in trouble um <laughs> <laughs> don't get this one wrong <laughs> yeah I, I, I don't know there's like a range of stuff i like um of other people's work and um there's certain sort of balances to stuff and um i, I suppose the person that's put me in contact with you guys was actually is probably one of the people's work I like a lot of but I think um you know that's Adam Mark which is Fred Fred Table or as I say that sort of stuff is quite cool because it's like like it's just beautiful in multiple directions it's not just someone's gotten the extrude tool and made something that way with the design side of things um and but there's a you know there's a range of really nice design out there and I think design influenced by making is really really important um Oh, I don't know what my favorite work is. Like, I, in some respects, I don't. I like the the logs. Kind of get to this point where you're like, oh yeah, they look nice, and each one looks really cool because they go through hand making processes. But you kind of go, oh, I don't want to see another log. Um, and um, but like, I, I think for me, like the propeller is something I really enjoyed coming well in a sadistic kind of way um, in hindsight i'll enjoy doing it like as a retrospective i enjoyed doing it but at the time i was like quite annoyed with the design process and how frustrating it was but like each design sort of influences how you make or how you design and um and that one did so a lot and it's really informed how i think and i think thinking in three dimensions is a really important thing um for everyone um, and especially for me, and, and, and I suppose like when, when you're designing, having something that's really pushed your three-dimensional thinking is really important. And, and that, that propeller um, pendant really, really was because it's all about sort of three-dimensional forms. And um, yeah, I, I suppose the, the thing I learned the most from, and I suppose it's I still like I look at it and I don't want to, you know, I, I don't get, I'm not, I, I, yeah, I just really think the form's still nice. But um um, still, I like the forms of logs, but I, you know, the propellers, uh, something that it's sort of, I feel like I learned the most from and gained the most from as well in the whole process of designing it. And that propeller light is so striking. I was reading your, um, website and you mentioned something about playing with light and shadow and it's, it's not something you really hear that often about shadow being part of the picture it's a little bit where like when people talk about music and they're listening to the notes that aren't being played and it's a bit like it's the opposite and immediately when i saw a picture of it i actually noticed the shadow that it created first and the shape of the shadow which was the first time i've actually noticed that because because i was thinking about the shadow as as a form rather than the light just producing light so you can see it was actually in itself its own kind of awesomeness of shadow <laughs> it was really mm. cool and, and it's, it's quite hard to actually see it in some of the photos as well but the light it sort of throws it in really random directions um mm. up, up around and i suppose it's it's a weird thing that like um i think it's quite fun to just play with um and i suppose that's the thing is like making cabinets and stuff i really enjoy but um 
you know, just playing with with light in different ways as well, something I enjoy. And I've, I've managed to integrate it into a cabinet once as well where I've managed to embed like the... Um, the reverse of a of a shadow into the front of a, a cabinet where it's like been routed out um, and it's like 0.3 mil thick and the light bursts through like it's reversing the dappling oh, effect awesome. of a forest. Um, and it, yeah, like it, that was like um, you know being able to do the two together was really fun as well. But yeah, like light light huh. is something that you know I think you subconsciously get affected on. Like everyone hates going to the hospital because the the light the light in there well for other reasons as well but um, you know um, but like the but the light is, you know but when you go into a forest and the light comes down on you it's like something that really I think makes influences your mood. Mm, you're right. Yeah. All right. I reckon we'll leave it there for tonight. Um, it was a really fascinating show. So um, to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. It really does help us out. The Shopstool podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks for hanging out. Um, once again, obviously, Duncan, thanks so much. Uh, it was great to hear your story. And um, yeah, really happy to have had you on the show. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Oh, cheers, Duncan. Really, really inspirational stuff as well. Cheers. Thank you. All right, guys. Take care. See you, everyone.